Good morning. As you're aware, if you turn your Bibles to the book of Malachi, that's where we will be spending the next several months. When you think of marriage and the relationship that that entails, perhaps that's one of the most rewarding aspects of God's creation. I know that is the case for me. When it comes to male, female, romantic relationships, many of you are probably familiar with the term the infatuation stage. Why is it that to some degree there's a luster that wears off when it comes to these relationships at times? When we progress out of the infatuation stage. Now, this, of course, is not to speak ill of marriage. By all means, I love my wife now just as much, if not more, than when we first married. However, there's certainly a time, those of us that have experienced this, where that relationship is forced to deal with circumstances outside of that fantasy bubble that we originated in in our relationship. By God's grace, a husband and wife learn to love and appreciate each other apart from the infatuation stage and in many respects grow in a more deeper, intimate relationship with one another. Although, why does that stage wear off? Why do some begin to lose their passion and commitment to one another? To quote the famous idiom, could it be that familiarity breeds contempt? What about when we first received Christ? Do you remember those of us that have been born again for some time now? How passionate you were to share Christ with others. How passionate you were to sit under the preaching of God's word. How excited you were to come to church every Sunday. To be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. To pick up your version of the Bible on a regular basis to hunger and thirst for it, to read it consistently on a daily basis? Although, are there days even now for us all after serving Christ for a period of time, our worship has become lackadaisical at times? Have we seen, as we've seen, this is exactly where the Jewish people were within the context of Malachi. So excited as they returned to the promised land as we looked at, but now a hundred years later and perceived unanswered promises from God and they had become lackadaisical. Familiarity breeds contempt in their worship. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, We will continue to see their apathy and their contemptible worship 
on display concerning the great God of Israel. As for us, my first goal would be centered upon Psalm chapter 51, verse 17, which says that a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. That being said, when we examine Israel's worthless worship, would we be challenged in the same way to acknowledge at times our own superficial approach to worship? To admit our need for more sincere and devoted worship of this great God in whom we serve. Secondly, after that acknowledgement, that broken and contrite heart, would we commit to protect ourselves from such contemptible worship? In our message this morning, we'll look at three categories in order to answer the question, how might we protect ourselves from such contemptible worship? Would you stand with me, please? And we'll read from Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering, 
Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. You may be seated. Now, before we unpack these categories within the context of Malachi, it's important for me to define two terms within the context of the church age. We'll see throughout this passage worship from a Levitical perspective. However, in order for us to apply it, we must understand what worship looks like for us now here in the church age. You don't need to turn there, but let me share two passages of Scripture for help. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship or service of worship. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, we read, Through him then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. simply stated, worship within our context in this church age encompasses all areas of our lives, whether that might be prayer, whether that might be gospel proclamation, whether that might be fellowship, whether that might be your homes, your jobs, whatever your life entails is an offering of service unto our Lord. Worship unto our King. Secondly, a term that needs to be defined. We'll also see much of this section, this week as well as next, directed to the priests of the day. Now, of course, application could be made from a leadership perspective within the church. Although, let us all never forget 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which reads, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are priests called by God to worship him in every facet of our lives. In the same way, that contemptible worship was completely unacceptable and sinful for the nation of Israel, the truth remains the same for us even here today. So, 
with those terms defined, let's look a little closer at our first category of foundation for worship. This is found in verses 6 through 8. To begin with, as you can see, the prophet uses the illustration of a father and a son and a master and a servant. There are two words here in verse 6 that begin to drive a proper foundation for worship. The first is this word honor. This is the same Hebrew word that is used for glory. It carries a deep sense of weightiness, a bestowment of honor. From a natural perspective, we all understand honor when it comes to the fifth commandment, that we are called to honor our father and mother. How much more honor is required for God? Yahweh, the God of Israel. The second word, key for us when it comes to a foundation for worship, is this word respect. It could also be translated as fear and denotes a profound fear and reverence and awe of this mighty God. In Psalm 76, verse 11, we read, Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him, him who is to be feared. So, when it comes to this foundation for worship, honor and respect or the fear of the Lord, or at its core. Yet, what do we see from the priests of Israel? We see them offering defiled foods, blind, lame, and sick sacrifices that the word says was actually despising the name of Yahweh. We also see their self-righteous attitude. And the question, how have we despised your name? In direct contradiction to a broken and contrite heart that the Lord will not despise. This word despised is a looking down with contempt. It's the same word that's used of Esau and how he perceived his birthright because of a simple hunger. Looking down with contempt upon this birthright, which was of great privilege and honor, as we discussed several weeks ago. By way of application for us here today, especially in this second service, it would be almost as if our minds were more concerned with where we are going for lunch after this service, rather than the worship of God. Looking down with contempt. We don't think about it in those terms. Let it never be the case for us. 
that we would be found with hearts that were looking down on the worship of this God, despising His name in whom we love. That word despised, even within our context, carries an extremely negative connotation. That being said, would it drive us to consider more the weightiness of God, the honor and the respect that He so deserves? A weightiness and respect that would keep us from despising His name. From a Levitical perspective, the requirements regarding worship were absolutely clear. And the potential consequences of disobedience were severe. You don't need to turn there, but listen to Leviticus chapter 22 in regards to what we see from what these priests were offering unto the Lord. For you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep or the goats. Whatever has defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or for a freewill offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord. Or earlier in verse 9, we hear of potential consequences of such offering of useless, contemptible worship. They shall therefore keep my charge so that they will not bear sin because of it and die thereby because they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And yet, What do we see from these priests in verse 8? After what we've already seen in verse 6 and and 7? A greater level of honor and respect for man as compared to Yahweh. Look again at verse 8. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Think about this for a moment. In conjunction with that respect, reverence, awe, and fear of the Lord mentioned in verse 6. The respect or fear that was required of them for Yahweh was less important than the respect for their Persian governor. Let that sink in for a moment. Moreover, when it comes to the sacrifice for consumption, perhaps human beings would eat of a lame or blind animal but never a sick one. And yet they offer the sick to God. 
And as we consider the weight of such challenge personally for ourselves within our context, through the words of our Lord in Luke 6.46, strike a chord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say when it comes to worship? When it comes to our 21st century governors, how often do we offer a greater level of honor and respect to him or her rather than to our Lord? Would we ever take lightly showing up late to work? Would we take the study of our job and our craft lightly? I've been there. Each and every one of us have. And that is contemptible worship unto this God whom we serve. As we approach each day, Will we be committed by God's grace to have a proper foundation of worship, for worship, to live in a way that considers the weightiness and the profound fear of God as opposed to the fear of man? Think of that even when it comes to our worship and gospel proclamation. The announcement of good news. Do we fear man more than we fear and revere our Lord? Charles Ryrie described it as such. The character of true worship must be genuine and without pretense. God hates insecure worship. Fake worship is that which is not in accord with the revealed word of God. Therefore, to worship in truth necessitates a growing knowledge of the word, which will also increase our appreciation for the worth of the God we worship. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, we read of how these priests should have operated and as for us, by God's grace, we might operate. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. As for us, we'd be wise to heed such sound wisdom as we seek to daily practice a proper foundation for worship, a foundation that is anchored in the honor and fear of our Lord above all things. Profound respect and reverence for Him in the same way that we offer it to the men and women that we operate with or maybe are even in subjection to. The second category is our focus for worship in verses 9 through 11. Now, unfortunately, in this day and age, throughout time, 
there are many that have treated God as if he is simply a genie in the bottle, if you will. All that's required is a simple rub and request in order that I might get what I want, what I desire. In verse 9, the prophet uses a bit of irony to communicate the exact opposite of what's said. It's as if the priests were willing to actually request the Lord's favor in order that he might be gracious to them. After offering what they had offered, the blind, the lame, and the sick, despising his name and then requesting that he might be gracious to them. Would he actually receive that type of contempt worship kindly? The focus for worship has nothing to do with receiving from God, but giving. More on that in verse 11. Nevertheless, in verse 10, he clearly demonstrates even more the level of apostasy when it comes to these priests. Notice what he actually states. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. A couple points here to illustrate the level of God's concern for contemptible worship. This shutting of the gates was actually only used one other time within the scriptures in 2 Chronicles verse 28. And you know what that account was? The historical account of the wicked king Ahaz who actually shut the doors of the temple of the Lord in order for him to relocate his abominable, contemptible, idolatrous worship of other gods. He shut the doors of the temple. In essence, God is saying it's better to have no worship than idolatrous and contemptible worship. And then, this word useless or could be translated in vain worship, strikingly resembles the account found in Isaiah chapter 1. I'll read verses 11 through 15. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats when you come to appear before me. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. 
new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. When our focus for worship is more concerned with ourselves rather than the object of our worship, what do we expect from God? Do we expect him to receive our spiritual act of worship kindly? As the priest of Malachi say did. He goes on to say to the priest in verse 10. I'm not pleased with you. Nor will I accept an offering from you. This is getting rough as we continue to think on how this applies to us and how we worship the Lord at times, lackadaisically, superficially. Now, let me take a step back and say, of course, if you are in Christ, we are no longer under condemnation. God is pleased with you because of the sacrifice of his son on your behalf. Nevertheless, God is not mocked. What we sow, we shall reap. And he disciplines those whom he loves. Would we ever want our Lord not to be pleased with us? Of course not. In this account, he's not only angered with the offering, but with the priests themselves. So, the question still remains, how do we protect ourselves from contemptible Useless, vain worship. None of us who are in Christ desire that our Lord would be despised with us, displeased with us. I know that as my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Although we all at times understand what it means to fail in this endeavor to lack in our devotion to Christ one of the protections against this failure is our focus for worship look again at verse 11 for from the rising of the sun even to its setting my name will be great among the nations and in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. 
and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. As for the priests, their worship was more concerned with checking a box, if you will. Is that ever us when it comes to even our worship here today? Are we checking a box? Or do we come to honor, respect, fear, and worship our king? They were more concerned with what they would receive, the priests. However, in verse 11, we see this crescendo of ultimate glory and praise that is an inevitable focus for worship, true biblical worship. Two times he says, my name will be great among the nations. Moreover, he also communicates a picture of ultimate victory and glory in a time when offerings will be pure and in every place. This word pure is unique as compared to the common adjective that is used to describe an unblemished sacrifice. It actually communicates not just a ceremonial purity, but a moral purity. Now, I believe wholeheartedly this is a reference to the millennial kingdom where that will inevitably transpire. Where we will reign morally pure with Christ on the throne. The prophet Zechariah proclaimed this, this focus for worship when he stated in chapter 14, verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, in His name the only one. As for Israel, much of their apathy and contempt was bred because of a distrust of perceived unanswered promises. We looked at that in our introduction to this book. The word of the Lord to Israel confirmed with certainty such promises, along with the glory that he deserved. Unfortunately, for Israel, there was a lack of focus upon Yahweh and the certainty of his promises and the glory he deserved. When we consider our own lives, can we find strength in the ultimate focus for worship? A focus that is grounded in a truth such as Numbers 23, verse 19, that says, God is not a man that he should lie. Or Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. That what he has began in you, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Or even better, 
1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, we do it all for the glory of God. His name, as he declares here in verse 11, will be great among the nations. That was the case for Israel, and it will always be the case for his people. Because of this, we can strive for a life of worship and seek by God's grace to worship with a proper focus. fear God over our fear of man in whatever area the Holy Spirit is even now convicting you as he has done so with me this will in in turn lead us to focus not upon ourselves but upon the Lord himself and others not upon our wants and desires when it comes to a focus for worship. To praise His name as great among the nations. Why? Because He is faithful and His steadfast love will always endure. Praise be to God. Our third and final category is an attitude of worship. Verse 12 is in essence, as you will see, a restatement of verses 7 and 8. That said, let's look again at verses 13 and 14. You also say, my how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from the hand, from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it. But sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. A couple comments here regarding this attitude of worship as we draw to a close. Have you ever been so frustrated because of certain circumstances that you were just done physically as well as mentally? with those circumstances done in a way that perhaps even verbally created a ridiculing gasp as if I am just done a gasp of ridicule this is what is being communicated in this disdainful sniff by these priests This God in whom they serve, they disdainfully sniff and ridicule a gasp that says, I'm done. Physically and mentally, I'm just done. Are there times when people in our lives 
help to create maybe even a disdainful sniff or gasp from us. What about decisions at times that we're encountered with from others that do not match what we feel is appropriate? How do we respond to those? This is an act of worship as we defined in the beginning. Worship encompasses every area of our lives. Whether it's seen or even not seen, the Lord sees all. Remember this. Let it drive us to not be a people of, and I just cannot stand this term, hypocrisy. Because that is what we see from these priests. Look at verse 14. These swindlers, or you might say cheats, actually vowed the proper sacrifice. A male. And yet, they offered a blemished female hypocrisy to its fullest. I know that there's not a single one of us here today that would ever desire to have that label attached to our lives. In the natural sense, far more in the spiritual, that God would look upon us and say, you are despising my name, you hypocrite. Matthew chapter 25, verses 50 and 51. Listen to our Lord's words concerning hypocrites. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Powerful words. What about the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? We know, all of us, how that transpired and their deceitful attitude of worship, lying unto the Holy Spirit. So, in many respects, I know what you feel right now as I have felt it all week. How this type of message hits way too close to home. Very challenging indeed. And that being said, how can we be found being more mindful of a proper foundation for worship, a focus for worship, and a proper attitude of worship. Look again at the end of verse 14. He once again says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, 
and my name will be feared among the nations. As for us, Christ is our King. Christ is our great high priest. He is our example. Feel the weight of this challenge from the word of God. Join with me in repenting of our superficial, lackadaisical worship. But don't stay there. Look to Christ. He is the one in whom we have been called to reflect the same attitude. He is the one that is the epitome of the definition of worship and that he sacrificed his body on a cross. You know it too well after the time that we've spent in Philippians. But let it be an encouragement to you as we've struggled through such a difficult challenge in this passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 read, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Those of us that are in Christ can say hallelujah to the Lamb. Praise be to God that he does not look upon no longer my contemptible worship, but let that never be an excuse for us not to pursue the worship of this great king who gave his life for you. My dear friends, Christ is our foundation for worship. He is our focus for worship. He is the strength of our attitude for worship. We should leave these doors not under condemnation, but under passion as we look to Christ to live a life of worship. To close. I'll share with you the all too common but all too precious four lines from a hymn that you know well. How do we protect ourselves from contemptible worship? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.
bow with me in prayer. Lord, we come to a passage such as this, humbled by our failures, humbled by a lack of devotion, honor, respect, and fear of you, but we leave a message such as this because of your revealed word of God, which is once and for all delivered to the saints with a motivation, with an excitement that because of you, O God, we can worship. The nation of Israel could have worshipped as well. For by grace and faith has always been your tool when it comes to covenantal relationship with you. Lord, I pray right now for those of your people who are seated in this, seated in this room, even listening via live stream, that if we are in Christ, O oh God, by the power of your spirit, equip us, strengthen us to be worshipers of the King. Dear Lord, if there might be anyone under the sound of my voice here today who does not have the opportunity or even the ability to worship you as they despise your name, you offer, through your Son, the perfect sacrifice for them. I pray, Lord, that through your gifts of repentance and faith, they might receive you and worship you, the God whom they already know. In Jesus' name we pray.